You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to this podcast, which is looking at having an uncompromising approach to infection control. We're fortunate today to have Nolene with us. Nolene, would you mind just explaining your position and role? I'm a senior infection control consultant and I'm employed at the Vicknis Coordinating Centre, which is located in Melbourne at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. And part of my role there is to oversee and support infection surveillance in the Victorian aged care homes. Thanks, Nolly. We've been reading through the guidelines coming through and what I was hoping is that you'd be able to bring what's on paper to life for us and highlight what are the key areas that we should be paying attention to and how to prioritise working through those. What's a key message to start off with? The key message is before you even open the guidelines, you really need to have an understanding when we're talking about COVID-19 or any other infectious disease, in fact, how is it transmitted? And I think that's important because if you understand how it's transmitted, then you know why certain precautions are being recommended. So COVID-19 is transmitted via droplet or after exposure to contaminated surfaces after close contact with an infected person without using appropriate personal protective equipment. Now, it has not been reported airborne spread. That might occur, that's said, during certain aerosol-generating procedures, which are not usually conducted in an aged care home. Having mentioned that they're droplets, I automatically think of, do you mean water droplets or, or other sorts of droplets? Droplet transmission can occur when an infected person coughs, sneezes or talks and during certain procedures. Now, the droplets are infectious particles. Respiratory droplets, they transmit infection when they travel directly from the respiratory tract of the infected person to the eyes, nose or mouth, so susceptible mucosal surfaces of another person, generally over short distance. Key message here is that you shouldn't stand too close to people as they cough, sneeze and talk. That's why we say social distancing of 1.5 metres. A point there as well that you mentioned about aerosoling. So you're saying that the information at the moment is that this virus doesn't seem to aerosol. Are there some other viruses that do aerosol, just to give people a, an understanding of what that means? One of the infectious agents that's primarily transmitted by the airborne route is measles. Another one is tuberculosis. So airborne transmission is different to droplet transmission in that it occurs by particles containing the infectious agents that remain effective over time and distance. Very, very small aerosols are created, again, during breathing, talking, coughing, sneezing, and secondarily by evaporation of larger droplets in conditions of low humidity. So what all that means is that 
These aerosols can be dispersed over long distances by air currents and inhaled by susceptible individuals who have not had contact, who are not as close to the infectious person. And you're saying that the COVID-19 doesn't appear to do that. So if you're in the same room with someone away from a meter, you're unlikely to just breathe it in. I'm never going to, you know, be all out and say there's absolutely no risk, but unlikely. Yeah, very different to the infectious agents that I've said about measles and tuberculosis that we know confidently can be transmitted by airborne route. So if I don't touch something that someone else has put a droplet on, and if I don't stand within 1.5 metres of someone, that means that I'm pretty unlikely to get the virus. Is that safe to say? Yes, absolutely. Safe to say that's a good start for everyone to avoid transmission. So, Nolene, you've spoken a little bit about droplets. Maybe if you could tell us a bit about contact. How does that kind of typically occur in terms of surfaces and, and the like? Contact is actually, for many different infectious agents, a really common mode of transmission. And we can break it down into direct or indirect transmission. So direct transmission occurs when infectious agents are transferred from one person to another. For example, a patient's blood entering a healthcare worker's body through an unprotected cut in skin. So that's direct transmission. Indirect transmission involves the transfer of an infectious agent through a contaminant intermediate object or person. So, for example, a healthcare worker's hands transmitting infectious agents after touching an infected body site on one patient and not performing proper hand hygiene before touching another patient. This is why, again, understanding how COVID-19 is transmitted and other infectious diseases, when we talk about contact transmission, why infection control practitioners will be telling you to do hand hygiene frequently, why we will be telling you how important cleaning and disinfecting is. Because we're trying to break the route of transmission. We don't want neither direct nor indirect transmission by the contact route. So if I'm touching something that's contaminated, it's on my, it gets onto my hands. And if I then put the hands on my mouth or my nose or my eyes, then I can get the virus that way. So I think if I understand this correctly, the ideas are to clean the surfaces at the correct times and to use hand hygiene as much as possible to stop the second part. Is that kind of right? Yep. So in what you've just described, there's three points I would make. One is clean the surfaces, hand hygiene, and don't touch your face. When you say cleaning the surfaces, does that just mean I wipe it down with a sponge? A little bit more than that. First thing to say is we want to be looking to clean frequently touched surfaces. So if you stand back and look at your environment, particularly in an aged care home, frequently touched surfaces are going to be those closest to the residents. So think the bed rails, walking frames, handrails, tabletops, etc. Now, these should be cleaned using a neutral detergent. What I will add to that though is in an outbreak situation that you would look to use disinfectant too. The other thing I'd say is too that's related to this is as much as possible dedicate equipment to one resident only. If equipment needs to be shared, so maybe wheelchairs are being shared, tourniquets, if they're not dedicated to one resident then they need to strictly be cleaned between use for those different residents. What kind of data do you have at the moment about how long the virus survives on surfaces? 
Yeah, good question. You know, uh, we don't have definitive data, but it will survive differently on different surfaces is what we know. And that could be a few hours to a few days. I think more so a few hours, but this is why we're looking to clean daily. And again, those frequently touched surfaces. So in terms of prevention, how do you think your way through it? Do you start with the person coming through the front door and stopping them coming in? What would you say is the approach? COVID-19 appears to be, you know, it's, it's new, but all those practices, all those policies that previously you've put in place preparing and managing influenza are very relevant to what you're going to be doing in preparing and managing coronavirus. So we're looking to build upon what we have already learned. So maybe a modification of that outbreak plan. And the things that we need to cover is things related to standard and transmission-based precautions. So standard precautions apply to everyone. And you know, these standard precautions are no different to whether we were working in an intensive care unit, whether we're working in a medical ward, whether we're working in community health, or whether we're working in an aged care home. Standard precautions include hand hygiene, appropriate use of personal protective equipment, cleaning and safe handling, and disposable of sharps, for example. Transmission-based precautions are quite detailed, and this is you know, if should we have an outbreak situation, particularly where the standard precautions are not sufficient on their own. And this is where we need to go beyond those standard precautions. So that's when we start talking about isolation, etc. Can I just touch on the, the need for an outbreak plan? Do, do I need a plan ahead of time? Why can't I just make one up when an outbreak occurs? Isn't it always about just the more prepared, the more likely you'll be able to manage an outbreak situation. I think, for example, staff education. I would suggest that we should be teaching staff now how to, for example, correctly put on a gown and correctly remove a gown and gloves. Sorry, I'll go back a step and just say there's been a lot of focus on personal protective equipment. So what I'm talking about here is the single-use surgical masks, the long-sleeve gowns, non-sterile gloves and eye protection. It actually takes some learning, training around how to appropriately use equipment. So in the midst of an outbreak, that is not the time to be doing that learning. So it's counterintuitive to me that why do I have to learn how to put gloves on and a mask on? I've done that before. It can't be that hard. You're right to say, Joe, that you would think it's very straightforward, but there is a sequence to follow. And I think to the aged care homes out there, you do well to go onto the Australian government website and look and learn and understand what that sequence is. Because if personal protective equipment is not properly used, there's a risk of contamination. And that's not what we want. We want our healthcare workers to be confident and knowledgeable about how to use it appropriately to avoid contamination. Just for the benefit of the listeners out there, can you give us an example of how contamination could occur like that? Sure, sure. The one that comes to mind is when people are looking to remove their masks. So if you just stop and think, the outside of that mask is 
what is considered contaminated. So if you go to remove that mask, placing your hand on the front of that mask and simply ripping it off, already your hand is contaminated. And then second, the risk is then you'll touch your face for whatever reason. And there you have it. You need to very carefully remove that mask using your hands from the back of your head. You know, it's very hard to describe on the podcast here. So I recommend people go and look at the posters to see visually how to do that. And there's resources for this on, on the website, from the DHS website? or You do well in your state to look at your own state resources first and also the Commonwealth. But what I would also say is these resources are changing frequently. For myself, I've sort of each morning, I'm looking to see if there's been any updates just to keep up to date, really. Just on the um, outbreak plan, because we, we got into PPE from that, I mean, in terms of what are the general headings do you think that should be included in an outbreak plan? Sure. Okay. So I think, importantly, goals of care, you know, around advanced care plans, sadly, I think it's important that they're in place for residents so that, you know, staff can be assured that care provided meets residents' expectations and wishes, always. Other headings, I think, uh, I've spoken a little bit about staff education. I think resident and family or visitors educations as important, visiting restrictions, signage, the stock levels that are required to be able to manage an outbreak, resident placement, outbreak identification. So just that's where, for example, we're asking clinical staff to routinely assess residents for potential COVID-19 signs and symptoms and know who to report these to. Lab services, is there a clear pathway for sending samples for testing and accessing those results? Communication channels, my goodness, it often comes down to communication, doesn't it? So processes exist that ensures service managers, GPs, infection prevention control teams, etc., are notified about suspected cases immediately as Departments of Health and Human Services, likewise. Equipment and cleaning, what are our practices and policies around equipment and cleaning? Hand hygiene gets a special mention always because it's the single most effective way of reducing the spread of germs that cause respiratory disease. And our vaccination, so there's not a vaccination yet available for COVID-19, but now is the time to be asking all staff, residents, visitors to have their influenza vaccination. Is that because co-infection with influenza can be particularly dangerous or? Well, it's certainly a possibility and a complication we're not wanting. (laughs) And the thing can coexist, you know, you could have the two respiratory illnesses at the same time. So we do have a vaccine for influenza. And my understanding is that these vaccines are now available. The vaccine that we're recommending for people aged 65 years and over is the Fluad Quad. And so that has been rolled out to GB clinics. And so for the residents, we're asking that they be vaccinated now as we are using a different vaccine, assuming most staff are aged 65 years and under, that they also be vaccinated alongside with visitors coming into the facility. I guess in this podcast, we're focusing on particularly preventing the entry of COVID-19 into the facility. 
What are the kind of steps that the facility should start considering at the point that they're organising a visit? Okay, so I think the visitors, um, as I said earlier, need to be educated about what is required in relation to standard precautions. So I would direct each aged care home to their state or territory government websites for coronavirus. Most have got resources that they can look to use and often in different languages, so that's helpful. But also the Australian government's coronavirus website has resources. I'd look to direct them to there. The other thing is once they've come in, again, we have to be confident that they understand what we're asking and that's around making sure the visits occur in the residence room, outdoors or in an area that's been designated. Not allowing in communal areas. Already there's restrictions around how many can visit. So we're not, you know, there's no large group visits or gatherings. These are important. And, you know, where we started this podcast coming back to, we're putting these in place because around the roots transmission, you know, we're trying to break that risk of transmission. Uh, There's nothing in the guidelines mentioning a mask, but we know some facilities are putting visitors in masks. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, we're typically talking about the single-use surgical masks. And I would not be encouraging visitors coming in. I don't think it's necessary for them to be wearing these masks. And the reason is, in wearing these masks, the emphasis on their single-use, they have a limited period that they're effective. And in fact, they become an issue where the person is not skilled in removing the mask and you know, they're putting their hand up on a moist, contaminated mask, touching it. If they're not knowing to do hand hygiene, it just becomes a cycle of introducing a risk that is not necessary. There is a place for the use of these masks, particularly if it's an outbreak setting. But, you know, in aged care home, there's not an outbreak. Asking visitors to put masks on is not necessary. And again, with gloves and masks, if there is going to be contact, there's the risk of contamination again. Is that the reason why we wouldn't use those things? Yeah. Can I just focus on gloves? Because I like masks, I've seen people wearing gloves at different times. The risk with gloves is people are removing them and, you know, they become contaminated at that point and do not do hand hygiene. I think the key point here is the use of gloves should never be considered an alternative to hand hygiene. Hand hygiene is the single most effective way of reducing the spread of germs that are going to cause respiratory disease. Um, What what about time limits? We've heard reports that people are limiting visits to 15 minutes. You know, if we really are working towards decreasing the risk, well, then maybe it is 15 minutes. But the thing where the aged care homes are more practice skills than myself is how to try and work and avoid this isolation because this is going to be for a while. I can't give you a time frame how long we're going to be preparing for or managing COVID-19 but what I do know is it's going to be a long time so we have to be very careful in weighing up how long you know these residents are isolated for. Okay just, just to finish off this example so then the visitor is now leaving Cleaning up where the visitor has been, is there, should there be a rapid kind of cleanup process if, if the visitor has been sitting on a chair, for example? 
I think, no, as long as we're confident that we have got daily frequent cleanings in place, then that's enough at this point in time. And and if a facility chose to do that, would that be reasonable to clean after every visitor? Increase the frequency of cleaning if they chose to do it well. Yes, I mean, that's, goodness, that might be hard to maintain. (laughs) Look, I think it's got to be sustainable. We need to constantly be doing risk assessments, weighing up what the isolation versus the infection prevention and control measures that are required at this point in time. Another question, and this applies both to, to visitors and staff, some facilities we're hearing are starting to do temperature checks. What do you think about that? My view on the temperature checking is that it's probably a helpful uh, practice to put in place in detecting whether a person should be entering or not. With that, is though, I'd like to think that staff are encouraged to, if they're feeling unwell, to speak up so that it doesn't take a situation where they're coming to work and they're unwell and that's picked up at the front door before they come in. I think staff have to understand what are the classical signs and symptoms we're looking for for COVID-19 and be encouraged to report them. I was going to ask, are there any other measures that staff should be checking daily to make sure that they're, well, to reduce the chance of bringing it into the facility? One of the interesting questions that I'm now being asked is about their closing. What, whether they should be coming to the facility, getting changed at the start of the shift and then changing again at the end of the shift before they leave the facility. Now, there's not strong evidence to show that works, but what I would say to that is it kind of makes sense to do that, that it is good practice. Around clothes, I would ask that the clothes that they've worn during the shift, that they're carefully removed, that you're not, you know, shaking your clothes, <laughs> that it's put in a, one plastic bag, taken home and washed in hot water for which the fabric allows. So I think that's the other thing staff might consider. Again, the evidence around, you know, doing that, helpful is it? But it's one of those ones that actually makes a little bit of sense to me. I think the other thing, Nolene, here is that it's it's not an expensive or there's really no downside, is there, to changing. So if it works uh, even a little bit, it's probably worth doing. Correct. Can't cause any harm. It just, it might help. Nolene, thank you very much for the insights you've provided to us. That's been a big help and I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate your plain speaking and ability to bring life to the guidelines. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, thanks very much, Nolene.